Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, October 28th. In today's news, Katie Hill is resigning. John Conyers has passed away. And President Trump gets booed at the World Series. But first, the big idea. President Trump announced Sunday morning that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the elusive commander of the Islamic State, died during a U.S. military operation in Syria. It's an important breakthrough more than five years after the militant chief launched a self-proclaimed caliphate that inspired violence worldwide. And what the president called a dangerous and daring nighttime operation, helicopters inserted a team of American special operations troops into a volatile area of northwest Syria, where they began an assault on a militant compound, culminating in a retreat by Baghdadi into an underground hideaway. There, in a dead-end tunnel, Trump said the militant leader detonated an explosive vest, killing himself and three of what were believed to be his at least six children. At its peak, the Islamic State controlled an area the size of Great Britain, boasting a massive military arsenal and a formidable financial base that it used to threaten the West and brutalize those under its control. While the group gradually lost territory to U.S.-backed Syrian and Iraqi fighters, officials cautioned that it remains a potent insurgent force even after Baghdadi's death. Officials say U.S. intelligence tracked the militant leader, a one-time academic and veteran jihadist who spent a year in a U.S.-run prison in Iraq, to a restive area near the border with Turkey that is home to an array of extremist groups. Sources in the national security firmament tell our Missy Ryan and Dan Lamoth that a critical piece of information on Baghdadi's whereabouts came from a disaffected Islamic State militant who became an informant for the Kurds who were working with the Americans. The Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, whose troops have fought alongside U.S. forces, indicated that they had provided intelligence that was key to the operation. A senior official from Iraq's intelligence service says the arrests and interrogation of people close to Baghdadi also helped yield his location, information that was then provided to the Americans. A U.S. intelligence official says we're now tracking six Islamic State individuals in the line of succession to the commander. It's as though Baghdadi was the CEO and these six guys were his executive VPs, the official explained. They're dispersed, but U.S. intelligence generally knows where all six are. The hope is that intelligence gleaned from the material recovered in this raid will help U.S. forces roll up the leadership cadre in the coming months. The ideal time to act is when the leadership ranks are in chaos, as they are now, and the movements or communications of the militants provide opportunities to target them. This American official added, quote, we'll keep picking away. Vice President Pence, speaking on CBS, said he and Trump were first informed on Thursday of the likelihood that Baghdadi would be at the target site, which the U.S. has been monitoring for some time now. The president authorized the mission on Saturday morning. Officials said that two U.S. service members were lightly wounded in the operation and that additional militants were killed, including two women identified as Baghdadi's wives who were wearing their own explosive vests. During his remarks at the White House on Sunday, Trump thanked Russia for its help and said he decided not to tell House Speaker Nancy Pelosi or Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff about the operation in advance, even though they're members of the Gang of Eight. 
He said he was concerned that it would leak if he told them. Does this mean that Trump trusts Vladimir Putin more than Nancy Pelosi? Senior administration officials sought to minimize the significance of Trump's comments and his mention of Russia, saying the U.S. had a requirement to consult with Moscow, which is an important backer of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and operates air defense systems inside Syria. They said they needed to tip off the Kremlin to ensure the safety of U.S. troops. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, Katie Hill, a Democratic congresswoman from California, just 32 and elected in November in a traditionally Republican district, announced last night that she will resign from Congress amid an ethics inquiry into allegations that she had an intimate relationship with a staffer. Hill's spokeswoman said that the resignation is not immediate and she's still deciding on when she'll officially leave office. Late last week, the House Ethics Committee opened an investigation into allegations that Hill was romantically involved with her legislative director, Graham Kelly. Hill was seen as a rising star in the Democratic Party. Her departure came after allegations surfaced just over a week ago in an article on the conservative website redstate.org. The article alleged that Hill and her husband were in a consensual three-person relationship with a woman on her campaign team. The article included text messages it said were between Hill and the woman, as well as intimate photos of the two women together. Hill is openly bisexual. The congresswoman has confirmed that she was in a relationship with the young female campaign staffer. She was in her early 20s, but has denied that she had a romantic relationship with her staffer. In her statement Sunday, she said she's pursuing legal options against those who released her private photos, saying that, quote, having private photos of personal moments weaponized against me has been an appalling invasion of my privacy. She apologized for, quote, mistakes made along the way and the people who have been hurt. Hill accuses Republican operatives and her husband of coordinating a smear campaign amid the couple's pending divorce, which has become increasingly nasty. In a statement last night, Speaker Pelosi said Hill has, quote, acknowledged errors in judgment that made her continued service as a member untenable and added that Democrats want to ensure a climate of integrity and dignity in the Congress and in all workplaces. Number two, John Conyers Jr., who served more than 50 years in Congress before resigning in 2017 amid sexual harassment allegations, died last night in Detroit. He was 90. As the longest-serving member at the time of his resignation, Conyers earned the title Dean of the House, and this job security allowed him to promote liberal, sometimes controversial causes that won him a national following. He co-sponsored the Voting Rights Act back in 1965, which prohibited discrimination at the ballot box. His fierce criticism of the Vietnam War led to clashes with Lyndon Johnson, and then it landed him on Richard Nixon's enemies' lists of political opponents. After the attacks of 9-11, Conyers voted against the Patriot Act because he said it would roll back civil liberties. But then legal documents emerged two years ago that showed several of his female staffers claimed he had approached them to request sex and that he had engaged in unwanted touching and other improprieties. Conyers was the only member of the House Judiciary Committee to take part in the impeachment proceedings against Nixon in 1974 for Watergate and then against Bill Clinton in 1998 for Monica Lewinsky. Conyers was also the first African-American to chair the Judiciary Committee. Number three, Trump, 
was met with sustained boos when he went to Game 5 of the World Series in Washington last night. When the president was announced on the public address system after the third inning as part of a tribute to veterans, the crowd roared into sustained booing, hitting almost 100 decibels. Then the crowd began chanting, lock him up and impeach Trump. There was a sellout crowd in the stadium for the game between the Nationals and the Houston Astros. And the president appeared unmoved, waving to fans and then moving on to chat with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy in a luxury box that was just along the third baseline. The president entered without fanfare eight minutes before the first pitch, only spotted by a few people in the crowd. This trip to the ballpark was the first time that Trump has attended a Washington sporting event since becoming president. He's not eaten at a single Washington restaurant beyond those in his own hotel, and he's skipped traditional social events such as the Kennedy Center Honors and the White House Correspondents Association Dinner. Now, the Nationals had sought to keep politics out of their first trip to the World Series and did not invite Trump, who decided to come anyway and then arranged the logistics with Major League Baseball. The commissioner of the league golfed with Trump on Saturday. Alas, the Nationals lost the game 7-1, to and they now return to Houston tomorrow, down three games to two in a best-of-seven series. Washington's bats went cold for all three home games this weekend, and Max Scherzer could not pitch because of neck spasms and nerve irritation. Emergency starter Joe Ross allowed four runs in five frames. Juan Soto, who just turned 21, prevented a shutout by hitting a solo homer late in the game, but it didn't matter. No team has ever won the World Series with four victories on the road. Now the Nationals' only remaining chance is to become the first. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, October 28th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. It's great to be back. Hope you had a great weekend. I'll talk to you tomorrow.